You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Celebrity apologies have become a sort of new genre on our screens these days. It seems like A new apology is being offered with every news cycle because somebody has publicly done something or said something wrong. And what we get most often are half-baked apologies scripted by public relations specialists that do very little for us. They leave us unmoved and unsatisfied. These apologies come across as mere formalities as boxes that need to be checked for the purposes of damage control. In many cases, people just want to salvage their reputation or their career. And when it's businesses that screw up, like Walmart's Kente Cloth Juneteenth ice cream, their apologies are basically for the purposes of trying to manage the bottom line, just to make sure that the profit margins are not hit. What we get most often is a combination of blame shifting, minimization, rationalization, and excuses that show up in a series of vague statements like this. Mistakes were made. I deeply regret what has taken place. I'm sorry that people were offended. This happened a long time ago. This is not who I really am. We sense in these folks a deep reluctance or refusal to take responsibility, to own their guilt or their failure. And as much as we can talk about what's happening in the culture, in celebrity culture, in corporate culture, the more pressing question for us this morning is this. What do you do with your sins and your moral failures? What do you do when you come face to face with your wrongdoing? What do you do? How do you handle it? Where do you turn? We said at the very beginning of this series that one of the most profound aspects of the Psalter is that it covers the full range of human life, the full scope of emotions and experiences that people go through. And that's why we have titled this series, Songs in the Key of Life. And this psalm today meets us in the occasion of life when we screw up bad, when we sin grievously, when we have some kind of moral or ethical failure. Today's psalm shows us that the Lord has spoken into the very similar situation that we face when we sin and fail, when we depart from God's design for human life. And I raised the phenomenon of celebrity apologies for this reason. We are in danger of becoming disciples of our culture 
rather than disciples of Christ. We, y'all out there? Y'all out there? All right, I'm just checking to see if, y'all, if there's a pulse out there today. <laughs> We're in danger of becoming disciples of the culture. Whether, whether our sins are in public or in private, whether our sin is greed, lust, selfishness, the misuse of our words, or indifference in the face of injustice, we got to recognize that without the whole counsel of God, we will follow the whole counsel of the world. You understand? That's why we have to preach the uncomfortable passages in the Bible. That's why we want to preach the text as they come to us to make sure we're giving you the full scope of God's words. Here's the deal. If we don't have the whole counsel of God, we too will be prone to minimize and rationalize and psychologize and normalize our sin. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. When God initiates his saving work in a person's life, there's an altogether different way that they deal with their sin for the rest of their life. And that word is called repentance. It may sound like a dusty old church word to you this morning, but with the Spirit's help, we're going to resurrect this important word and concept for you. And here's why it's so important that we do so. Repentance is as essential for our salvation as faith. It's as important for our growth in grace as faith. Now, repentance is not nearly as popular as faith. But it's every bit as important and necessary for our salvation. Because here's the deal. Before the Lord brings a person to glory, he brings them to repentance. You have to understand this. Before God brings a person to glory, he brings them to repentance. Put another way, if you are unfamiliar with repentance as a way of life, then you're really unfamiliar with the God who is life. So long as repentance is foreign to you, the saving love and grace of God will be foreign to you. Here's the deal. You might get burnt without Ernie, but you cannot have salvation without repentance. You may get Tom without Jerry, but you will not get salvation without repentance. You might get Jimmy McNulty without Bunk Moreland. And Jazzy Jeff without the Fresh Prince. But you cannot get salvation without repentance. So we have to understand repentance as a matter of life and death this morning. And we're going to explore this theme in our text through two points where we see the repentant heart and the heart of repentance. We're going to look at the repentant heart and the heart of repentance. And what I want to do is give some guidance, some correction. I want to fill out your understanding of repentance this morning. So let's look at our first point where we see the repentant heart. Now, if you look at the very beginning of Psalm 51, if you look at the note that precedes the psalm, it gives us the actual context of the psalm. And it takes us back to a story in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a popular story in the Old Testament from 2 Samuel chapter 11. And in this story, it tells us that in the time of year where kings go out to battle, 
King David stayed at home. And David remained in Jerusalem. And while he was in Jerusalem, twiddling his thumbs, doing the opposite of what a king was supposed to be doing, he finds himself taking a stroll up on the rooftop. And as he's strolling, he notices a woman who is bathing. Now, this was typical. This was normal in the culture. But instead of averting his glance, this old man starts to glare and stare. And then the lust crops up in his heart. And he uses his power to call this woman into his palace. And what he does is he uses his power to force himself on her sexually. This woman's name is Bathsheba. And this is a married woman. And not only is she a married woman, she's married to Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was one of David's soldiers. And as David was abusing his power to sexually manipulate and force himself on Bathsheba, her husband, his faithful soldier, was out fighting his war. Uriah the Hittite. He's called by his place of origin for a reason. Because according to the law, Uriah was a foreigner. He was a sojourner in the land of Israel. And the law expressly declared that sojourners and foreigners were to be cared for. And the person who was most responsible for executing that justice toward the sojourner and the foreigner was the king. And so here we see David falling into particularly grievous sin. But it doesn't stop there. Because after David sends Bathsheba away, she sends word to him that she got pregnant. And now David is confronted with some of the fruit of his heinous act. And at that point, he could have turned around and confessed his sin, but that's not what he does. He digs his hole deeper by trying to conceal it. So what he does is he calls to his commander of his armies and he says, send Uriah the Hittite back to me. And what he does is he tries to coax Uriah to going back to his house and sleeping with his wife so that Uriah may think that the baby is his. But Uriah is such a righteous and upstanding man that he sleeps on the front steps of the palace because he does not want to be enjoying amenities while the, the, the soldiers, his brothers in arms, are at war out there in the field. And when David finds out, he says, why, why didn't you go back to your wife? He said, how could I do such a thing? The ark of the Lord is not even in its place. And, and our brothers are, are fighting a war. How, I, would, I could never do such a thing. Uriah was a righteous and upstanding man. So David pushes his scheme further. And he has a little party. And he invites Uriah to the party. And he keeps shoving drinks in Uriah's hand to get Uriah drunk. And Uriah, even when he's drunk, is still more upstanding than David. Because he will not go back and sleep with his wife, which he had every right to do. No, he upheld his honor to his brothers in arms. So when that didn't work, 
David called Uriah to himself. And he wrote a note. And he sealed it. And he gave it to Uriah and told him to give it to the commander. But little did Uriah know that he was delivering his own death sentence. Because David instructed the commander of his armies to put Uriah where the fighting was most fierce. And then to withdraw from him. And it was in this way that David murdered Uriah. And made so many people in his life complicit in his evil schemes. Through the abuse of his power. But the Lord would not fail to get his word in to David. And so he sends his prophet Nathan. Nathan, which by the way in Hebrew means gift from the Lord. God's gift to David is when the prophet comes to him. And he tells him a little parable. And in this parable, there is a a wealthy man who has flocks and flocks and flocks. And there's a poor man who has one little ewe lamb he treats like a child. The ewe lamb eats with the poor man. And when the rich man has a visitor come, the rich man, instead of taking one of his lambs to slaughter it, to provide a meal for his, his guest, he takes the lamb of the poor man. And then Nathan says, what should be done to such a man? And David says, that man should be killed. And Nathan says, you're the man. You're the man. And the scales fall from David's eyes. And what we get as a result is Psalm 51. This is how we get Psalm 51. It captures David's repentance following this episode. And he begins in verse 1 saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. We see in Psalm 51 that David returns to the Lord. He turns from his sin to the Lord. He was running. He was rebelling But now he's returning and repenting. That's what repentance is. Repentance is turning from your sin back to the Lord. Sin is leaving the Lord and going off into the far country. But repentance is the homecoming. Repentance is when the prodigal says, I've run out of resources. I stink like the pig pen, so I must go back to my father. Though I am debased and ruined, I must go back to him. Sin is laying upon the deathbed asleep, caught within the deceptive dream of finding life apart from God. But repentance is... Repentance is waking from that deceptive dream and rising from that deathbed unto the reality of the covenant Lord of life and his unfailing love. C.S. Lewis once spoke of repentance like this. He said, and I quote, we all want progress, but if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that case, The man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. Listen, 
There are three possibilities when you sin. First, you can bury your sin. Sweep it under the rug. Pretend it never happened. Try to conceal it. So that if you get exposed down the road, you can say that's a long time ago. You can bury your sin. The second possibility is you can let your sin bury you. You can be overwhelmed with the guilt, overwhelmed with the shame, overwhelmed with the embarrassment and the sense of insecurity that comes from knowing that you have done wrong and that you are wrong. You can bury your sin. You can let your sin bury you. Or third, you can turn from your sin and honestly bring your sinful self to the Lord for restoration. Those are your three options. Most people confuse remorse and regret with repentance. But you can be regretful and remorseful without being repentant. You can be regretful and remorseful that you got busted and still not be repentant. You can be regretful and remorseful and still not be concerned about the sin itself that you committed just with its outworkings and consequences. But here's a question. How do we discern whether we have repentant hearts? Does that question occur to you? How do I know if I'm being repentant, if I'm walking in repentance, if I'm living a life of repentance? Listen, here's some ways to try and zero in on it. If when confronted, you always defend yourself to the bitter end, you may not be repentant. If you're more interested in looking good than actually being good, you may not be repentant. If you're more interested in chilling out and indifference in the face of injustices that are going on in the world, you may not be repentant. If there is nothing about the ugliness of your heart or your words or your actions that you currently despise, you may not be repentant. If you only talk positivity and you don't want to deal with the negativity that's within you, you may not be repentant. If you're accustomed to spinning the story and recasting the facts to make yourself look a little bit better than you actually were, you may not be repentant. If any of this describes you, look with me at the nature of true repentance as it comes to us in this psalm. In this psalm, we see what a truly repentant heart looks like. We see what repentance looks like. Verse 1 shows us that true repentance is grounded in the mercy of God in his covenant. Repentance is the tear of love dropping from the eye of faith when it fixes on the mercies of God in the gospel. This verse shows us that even though our character would forbid our approaching God, God's character welcomes our approach. It's grounded in the mercies of God. You have no claim over him except in his sovereign mercy. Verse 2 shows us that true repentance confesses the exceeding sinfulness of sin. 
Do you see in the text? David uses multiple terms to describe his sin. He calls it transgression, iniquity, sin, which are all different shades of meaning for the corruption that exists within us. The repentant are more brokenhearted over their betrayal of God than the consequences they may face. True repentance understands the relational dynamic of our actions. Sin is not just breaking God's law. It's breaking God's heart. It's it's creating estrangement in the relationship with the Lord. Verse 3 shows us that true repentance expresses sorrow for sin and takes ownership for it. Look at verse 3, all the personal pronouns. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He owns it. He makes it personal. It's not vague mistakes were made. What is that? That is the biggest load of what you use to fertilize gardens that I can think of. Verse 4 shows us that true repentance acknowledges the essential anti-godness of sin. That's why he says, you and you only, against you and you only. It doesn't mean that no one else was affected by his sin. He's talking about the essential anti-godness. This was the core of it. It was my rebel heart being against God that really caused this to transpire. And I just want to note this. I just want to note this. This verse may seem to confess an act that offends God but affects no other human being. But the idea that a person could sin without injuring others is inconceivable in the Old Testament. Every sin damages one's community, either by what you're failing to do or be, the impact you're failing to have, or the active ways in which your sin burdens the people around you or damages their faith. Think about what could happen to folks in this room if I fell into scandal. People new to the faith, children in the faith, Growing up saying, yeah, I knew it was all a sham. There is no such thing as private sin. It's all corporate. It metastasizes. There are concealed sins. There are unintended sins. But there are no private sins that neither concern nor affect others. So just as a note, as it relates to communal accountability and how we love one another, when you as a member of this community go off the path, when you wander and a brother or sister tries to bring you back, it is nonsensical to say this is none of your business. It absolutely is our business because we are a family. And if it hurts you, it hurts me. If there's corruption going on with you, I am touched by it. So let us be whole together. Do not despise the people who draw near to you to help you to stay on the path. That's love. And it takes loving courage to get up in someone's mix. Amen? All right. We got to amen it when we're in our sane moments. Because when we bug out, we don't want to hear all that. Just just remove me from the roles. I don't want discipline. No, it don't work like that, player. Right? That's not how it goes. 
because we're committed to love, and love will not let you go. We're supposed to be an embodiment of the love of God that will not let us go into destruction, that will not let us go into our own foolish ways, but implores us to come back home. Verse 4 also shows us that true repentance agrees with the righteous judgment of God with respect to my sin. And neither finds God's judgment unfair nor harsh, but just. It's agreeing with God about my sin. The repentant heart agrees with God about my sin. That it's odious. That it stinks to the high heavens. That it's foul and debased that I don't even begin to understand the half of what it means to do one sin against a God like that. It's devastating. Devastating, but I agree with God's just judgment. Verse 5 shows us that true repentance recognizes both the fruit and the root of sin. Evil acts flow from who I am. So that excuse this is not who I really am. No, it's exactly who you really are. And you were just bad at hiding it this time. I'm not just a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. Catch that? It stems from who I am in my core. There's something broken down deep within. And the repentant know this. I'm a beloved sinner. I'm an, I'm an adopted sinner, but a sinner nonetheless. Verse 6 shows us that true repentance understands that God is after more than external acts of contrition when we sin. He's not just after penance. He's after honest and truthful hearts, no matter how ugly the truth may be. Verse 8 shows us that true repentance is coming to God in mournful hope that he will restore. It's grounded in his promises and character. The repentant know that they can expect restoration, but they do so without presumption or entitlement. There's a distinction there. Verse 10 shows us that true repentance comes to the Lord not just for forgiveness of past sin, but for renewal that prevents future sin. You see? To, to, to cut it at the root. To shut the drain off at its very origin. Verse 12 shows us that true repentance comes to the Lord for a spirit that is willing to be killing sin. You know the old adage by that old school cat John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There is no safe neutrality with our sin. The repentant don't just come to God for their disobedience. They desire new obedience going forward. This is what our theological, our confessional documents talk about. Sanctification consists of a rising up into new obedience. That's what repentance results in. New obedience. Not like the proverb says, like the dog returning to its vomit. Nah. We're quitting that old way. We're quitting that practice. We're quitting that way of using our words. We're quitting that way of treating people. We're quitting that way of ignoring the poor. We're quitting that way of disregarding the kids. I'm giving up on the life of corruption and sin to walk in the newness of life. Because that's where joy is. 
That's where the fullness is. That's where the good stuff is. Verse 13 shows us that true repentance is not narcissistic navel-gazing. It longs to be contagious and missional. It's not narcissistic, completely focused on self. David says, if you restore me, Lord, I will teach others. I will teach sinners your way. I'll tell others that they can be forgiven, that they can be changed, that they can be raised up, that they can be made new and set on a different course. Nah, my repentance and restoration is about more than just me. It's contagious and missional. The repentance say, once I've been a student of repentance and renewal, I will be a teacher of it. Verse 14 shows us that true repentance is not content with generalization. Do you see in verse 14 that David says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. That is the specific sin that he was guilty of. One of the specific sins he was guilty of. He names it. So when you are seeking to walk in repentance, it's not just, oh, Lord, forgive my sins. Amen. That's fine, but it's not good enough. It's, it doesn't go deep enough. You know what our confessional documents say? The Westminster Confession of Faith says this. Don't content yourself with a general repentance. It's your duty to endeavor to repent of particular sins particularly. You catch that? Particular sins particularly. Name it specifically. Where exactly did you make the wrong turn? How exactly did things go awry in your heart and in your mind and in your words and in your actions that led you to this place? I love in this text that David also shows us that one of the results of the repentant heart is praise. Praise for the mercies of God. Praise for his long-suffering. You know, long-suffering hasn't gotten much press these days in terms of a word to describe God. But let me, let me tell you just a little bit. Just, just, just consider this for a second. What does it mean for God to be long-suffering? Have you ever been in a room with kids? Doing what kids do. Fighting, playing, being loud, acting up, cutting up. And how long is your fuse? You ready to blow them kids up in the space of two minutes, right? Come on, tell the truth. Shame the devil. I ain't the only one. Y'all don't leave me hanging out here like this. Y'all know you're wrong for this. All right, thank you. Thank you. I got one out here. Think about all of the crazy, wayward, broken, jacked up children that the father listens to and endures with. And he still delights to welcome us home. He doesn't blast us. I've said this a million times at Grace Mosaic. The Bible should only be four chapters. Genesis 4 should say, then God blew everybody up and lived happily ever after. The end. But the fact that the story continues all the way to new heaven and new earth, all the way to the feast of the Lamb, where guilty sinners are brought home, shining brightly in the righteousness of Christ, clothed in his perfect beauty, is an indication that our God is long-suffering. He's ready to restore. He delights 
to restore his people. Verse 17 shows us that true repentance offers a broken and contrite heart to the Lord. It chooses God's healing over hiding. Choose healing over hiding, y'all. That's the simple choice you're faced with when it comes to whether or not you will repent. Will you choose hiding or healing? If you would walk in repentance, then you must turn from lust to the lover. You must turn from greed to the giver. You must turn from fear to the protector. You must turn from particular sins to a particular savior. Which brings us to our final point, the heart of repentance. Here's the deal. This is what I'm trying to get through to you. The bad news is that time will not heal sin. You want an example? Racism. Everyone thinks that we're going to outgrow it. That time is just going to make it magically disappear. Time does not heal sin. Moral improvements will not outweigh sin. This is not in the scales, well, I hope my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. No. Moral improvements will not outweigh sin. Self-discipline will not overcome sin. You're not strong enough to tango with sin in your own power. (laughs) Good intentions cannot excuse sin. It doesn't matter if you say, officer, I didn't mean to speed. You still going to get that ticket because you broke the law. Good intentions do not excuse sin. The bad news is that you can't make things right by yourself. You cannot atone for your sin. The bad news is that you cannot eradicate your sin. But the good news is that you don't have to. Because if you look at verse 7. David says this, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David directs his attention to a priest who mediates, to a sacrifice that cleanses, to blood that covers. But for you and I, a better priest and a better mediator has come. A sufficient sacrifice has been offered and the hyssop bush has been replaced by the tree upon which Christ was slain for the sins of his people. Listen, God was rightfully angry about our rebellion, but he's never angry at our return, beloved. And we know this beyond a doubt because of the cross and the resurrection. Y'all live out there. Do you want to know how committed God is to welcoming and forgiving sinners? Look to the cross. Do you want to know how committed God is to restoring and raising up sinners? Look to the resurrection. The Son of God was revealed, so our sin no longer needs to be concealed. And once you come to the Lord... And own your guilt. He delights to share his grace. But you do not experience the fullness of God's grace until you own the fullness of your guilt. Repentance is turning from the sin that required the cross. 
and coming home to the love that inspired the cross. There is no sin so small that you need not return to the Lord. And there's no sin so great that you cannot return to the Lord. Repentance, do you see? It lifts up the sufficiency of Christ in the gospel and it says, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great savior. My sins, they are many, but his mercies are more. That's the good news, family. Not that you can turn over a new leaf. Not that you can get a pick-me-up or a quick fix through coming to church. No, the good news is that a good God redeems bad people for his good and holy purposes. That's the good news. And God is calling us today to come home. Come home to his love. Come home to his grace. Come home to his mercies. Come home to his joy and his fullness. God is more willing to pardon your sin than you are to commit it. <laughs> That's who he is. That's what he's like. If you ever question God's love, if you ever wondered if he gave a thought to you, if you ever wondered if God was for you, look to this text. Look to these truths and know that he's the God of welcome. The love of God our Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit are more than a match for your sin and your failure and you're dropping the ball and you're screwing things up and you're letting people down. His grace is sufficient. When we return to the Lord, we have more restored to us in Christ than we ever lost in Adam. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That was the first thesis of the Reformation, jumping off. When we embrace repentance as a way of life, pride will give way to humility. Indifference will give way to love. Performance will give way to wholeness and integrity. And anxiety will give way to courage. On our own, we are prone to wander. But when we behold the gospel, let us be prone to wonder at the love and the faithfulness of our God. He will hold us in his grip and he will not let us go. So let us again and again Turn back to him from all the lies, from all the idols, from all the selfish ambition, from all sin, so that we can find our fullness and our life in him. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.